Today we're going to read Genesis 37, verses 12 through 22. This is called, The Son is Sent. And boy, just wonderful pictures of Jesus. I'm going to read it to you, see if you can see Jesus in these uh, pictures as I'm reading them, and then we'll get right into the sermon. Um, Genesis 37, starting in the 12th verse. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said <clears throat> to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Today we're going to continue on with the life of Joseph. And as we've seen already, and as we're going to see, just as God unfolded parts of his plan through the stories about Jacob, he's going to do the same thing with Joseph now in his life. Every story contains lessons about how we can and how we should interact with others. They also continuously, and I mean throughout all of these stories of Joseph, will show us man's failures, even the greatest heroes of the faith that we hold to. God doesn't hide and he does not gloss over these things, but rather he exposes them for all of us to see. Every time such a story comes about, we should be appalled at our fallen state. We should marvel at the mercy and at the grace of God who continues to bear with us despite our actions. Today's story is a perfect example of this. Jealousy turns to hatred and hatred turns into a conspiracy to commit murder. If God's chosen family his people act in such a way we can look in the mirror and we can ask ourselves, are we really any better? Rather, the recesses of our hearts are deep chambers of wickedness which can overflow at any time that we don't keep a guard on our conduct and watch ourselves closely. So let's endeavor to do just that. Now, I picked a text verse today from Proverbs chapter 1. And you, if you just listen to what I read you about the brothers conspiring against Joseph. See if you can see how it matches so well. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secret, secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us ha all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. God warns us to stay away from troublemakers and those who would entice us to sin. We may have friends or co-workers who have a plan, which is intended to make us rich or to get ahead. If so, I can tell you what, if it's not in line with God's word, there can be no true profit in it. Let's be careful to adhere to what the Bible says. As it is written specifically, and intended for our good. 
And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today, the first of them being sent on a mission. This is verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Jacob is at this time living in Hebron. Now, during this period, Joseph had his dreams concerning his brother's sheaves bowing down to his. We saw that last week. And then the 12 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him as well. At some point after this, his brothers went back to Shechem to feed their flocks. This is the same place which Jacob bought from Hamor and the same area where the sons killed all of the males of the town which is uh, it's north of where they are by about 60 miles. Thus, through both promise and through conquest, they own this entire area. So far, they've uh, been safe since killing all of those cities' residents, and so they must have felt it was okay to go back to this area now. As I said, Shechem is about 60 miles north of Hebron, and traveling at a shepherd's pace, and I tried to put this into a perspective where I could understand it, would take about 20 or 30 hours to get there, maybe longer. It would be like any of us getting up and walking with a whole flock of animals all the way to Tampa or north of there. All right, now that might seem like a long way to go just to feed a bunch of animals, but they must have had a reason. And one of the things that came to mind is that maybe in the south it hadn't rained for a while. Israel isn't like Florida where it's all flat and we get lots of rain. It may rain, uh, you know, in one part of Israel and not rain at all in another. So that's possibly what's going on there. The area of Shechem, is now today, and it certainly was back then, a well-watered area. And so there was probably plenty of food and there was water for the flocks. Whatever the reason, God used this distance to bring about a chain of events which would lead to the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. All right, verse 13, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? The name Israel, and I noted this last week as well, it's mentioned only two times in this chapter. Once it is speaking of his love for Joseph, and then it's this time where he's speaking directly to Joseph, all right? Later, when he hears of his son's supposed death, which is in the same chapter, he's going to be called Jacob, not Israel. There is Jacob, which means deceiver. He is the deceiver who will be deceived. And then there is Israel who struggles with God. In this verse, he is Israel. And so Israel says to Joseph, the beloved son, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem. Now, a question like this does not mean that either Jacob or Joseph was ignorant of the matter. Rather, it's a way of introducing a line of thought. It's a rhetorical question, like others that are frequently used in both testaments of the Bible. The question is a statement of fact. Jesus does exactly the same thing when he spoke to the people around him. He said in Luke 12, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Jesus and all of the people there knew that, in fact, five sparrows are sold for two copper coins. He was making a point that if five sparrows are sold for such a cheap matter, uh, cheap amount, that how much more does God care about you who are worth many, many sparrows? All right. In the same way, Jacob is preparing Joseph for his direction by asking what's already obvious. Now, verse 13 continues, come, I will send you to them. By introducing his thought as a question instead of a statement of fact, it alleviates any later explanation. Jacob has said where the brothers are and what they're doing. So all he has to do is give his direction and anticipate the response. We do this all the time in English without ever realizing it. If my mom walks out when we were young, 
to the uh, table with a plate full of yummy pancakes, for example, and she says, who wants pancakes? She already knows the answer. But by asking the question, she's already told what's being served, and she's avoided any additional questions and answers. Now, I'm explaining that all of this because it uh, bears directly on what's being pictured here. Jacob now, he's been a picture of Christ for many, many, many long chapters. He now pictures God the Father. Joseph, in type, pictures Jesus, who is beloved of the Father. Joseph is hated by his brothers. This is something which was specifically noted three times last week in verses 4, 5, and 8. Jesus, likewise, knew that he was to be hated by his brothers. Jacob didn't know what Joseph's brothers would do to him, but the picture is still clear. God the Father, despite knowing what would come about, sent his son from his heavenly home to the wicked world to seek and save us. The plotting of man and the death of Jesus would eventually save many people alive. Verse 13 continues. So he said to him, here I am. Joseph has been at home while his brothers have been out working with the flocks. And this tells us with all certainty that he is the overseer of the brothers. The long, beautiful robe that he had wasn't something that one would work in. I talked about that before. There's a very specific reason why that robe is described. It is rather something that he would supervise with. When he goes to Shechem, it will be to check up on the progress and the well-being of his brothers. It should be noted, though, that as soon as Jacob spoke, Joseph responded. He did it without hesitation in his words. Rather, he said, here I am. Now, when God asked Isaiah for a volunteer, the same thing happened. If you know the book of Isaiah, it starts out with five chapters of woe and destruction. I'm going to do these things because of my disobedient people. And then he, uh, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, and there's the Lord high and exalted in the train filling uh, the temple where he's at. And he, he says, woe am I. He's been woeing everybody else, and all of a sudden he woes himself. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have beheld the Lord God Almighty. And then... Uh, the Lord atoned for his sin by taking a, a coal from the altar and putting it to his lips. And he says, you're purified. Now you can speak for my people. And after doing that, we read these words. Also, I hear the voice of the Lord, heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah's response, then I said, here am I, send me. And in Hebrews 10, quoting the 40th Psalm, Jesus responds in exactly the same manner, something which is actually being pictured in this portion of the life of Joseph. Let me read this to you. Therefore, when he, meaning Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Throughout the Bible, there have been many calls by God to his people. Some have been answered just like Joseph to Jacob. He said, here I am. Abraham was like this. He was asked to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering, and he responded immediately. Others have lingered. If you know the story of Lot before the destruction of Sodom, it says that he haltered or he hesitated, depending on the translation. What should I do? Some have been partly obeyed, like King Saul. If you know the story of King Saul, he was told to go and destroy the Amalekites and to destroy everything that belonged to them. That's a process known as harem. It means to utterly destroy as a devotion to God. And he only partly obeyed. 
What did he do? He uh, saved King Agag alive and he saved all of the best of the sheep and the flocks so that, you know, he, he supposedly could sacrifice them to God. But it was because he was weak and his people wanted those things and he couldn't tell them no. And that cost him the kingship. Others have tried to deflect the calling through excuse. If you know Moses, he uh, gets called by God at the burning bush and he says, you know, I, what do I do? I mean, what if people say, who are you representing? And the Lord says, well, do this and that. And he says, well, you know, I'm slow of tongue and speech. And even now after talking to you, I can't speak well. And he says, maybe you can find somebody else. And the Lord says, no, you're going to do it. And then he finally says, he just is blunt. Just find somebody else to do this job. And it says the Lord's anger was kindled at him. And then Jonah, Jonah tried to run away and hide from the Lord. You've got all of these people that do not respond in the way that you would expect. You can't hide from the Lord, and Jonah figured that out. And the thing is that if you're a faithful Christian, then God has certainly called you at one time or another. I know that because if you're a faithful Christian, he called you to receive Jesus. So you had to have been faithful to that call at least once in your Christian walk. And he's going to ask you to do something again in the future. And there are many answers that you can give when he does. He can, he can say, just a minute, Lord. You know, I'm busy right now. I'm, I'm doing something with uh, somebody that I shouldn't be doing. And I, I need to get this done so that I can turn back to you with all my heart later. And you can say, I'm busy, Lord. I, I just have too much in my life to pursue you right now. I know you're calling and I will get to it. But I got all of this stuff that needs to be done first. Or you could say, I'm afraid, Lord which is exactly what Darla and I were talking about earlier. You know, when we started Church on the Beach, and this was a couple years ago, it was in the afternoons. I said, I just want to start preaching, and I want to do it in the afternoons. I didn't know if anybody was going to show up for that first service. And I walked out onto Siesta Beach. We tried that, and that didn't work out at all. It was a disaster. But I got to tell you what, I was scared. I was absolutely, is anybody going to show up and make a fool out of myself in front of all of these people? And it turned out great, but we did move down to Turtle Beach, where we had two years' worth of sermons. And eventually, in the afternoons, we'd have between 25 and 50 people consistently. One time, we had probably eight or ten musicians. We had a little hoedown, and we always had people playing music, every single week, without fail. And I knew that that would never turn into anything that would be, uh, it would never take care of the needs of my wife when she retires, all right? And so I decided I'm going to change from this nice afternoon service and we're going to start doing this on Sunday morning. And I told everybody there that was there that day, if you have a church that you attend on Sunday morning, do not come next Sunday because I'm not here to rob people from other people's churches. I want to start a church and if you're not happy in a church or if you're not attending a church, that's different. But if you attend a church, do not come. Then we went from about 50 people down to three people and it was that way for a long time. And it was difficult, and it still is difficult. You know how hard it is to get people to show up and to say, I'm going to be responsible about this particular issue in my life. And so we can say, I'm afraid, Lord, I'm just not going to do this. But I got to tell you what, there is one response that the Lord is going to be pleased with when he calls you. And it's, yes, Lord, here I am. Keep this in mind, because as you are led to respond to the Lord's call in your own life, you got to be re ready and you've got to be willing to step up and to say that his will is always right in your life. And I got two people that I want to embarrass today. One of them is not in this place and the other is. I've got Paul who I from time to time bring up to embarrass. It's because he got a call in his life. I'm not going to say what his age is, but you can look at him and you can take a kind of a guess. He got a call in his life at a time when most people wouldn't 
say, I'm going to do something big and important for the Lord. And he and his wife moved everything out of their house into storage. And I know because I was there that day and it was it was a nightmare. I, the, the storage facility they gave him was through a door, down a hall. We had to take things apart to get in there. It was, it was a long, hard day. We thought three people would do it in two hours. It took about seven people about 12 hours. It was just a long, hard day. But we got him out of here, and he went to Japan, to North Japan, where it snows eight feet, and he shoveled snow, and he tended to missionaries over there. And that is a calling that he said, yes, Lord, I'm going to do this. And I personally didn't understand it, especially with some of the things that were going on in his life at that time, which I'm not going to bring up. But he went. And that was him saying, I'm going to be obedient to whatever call this Lord is, the Lord has put on my heart. Now, I'm going to give you another one right here. I'm going to put this out for display in the future. This girl's name is Jody. All right. And she's a girl that I used to do uh, uh, walk, you know, our Saturday morning walk with down in the uh, projects every week. She'd come. She attended church with me at another church, and uh, she's remained faithful. Uh, as a servant of the Lord through all of it. But she got a call to be a missionary. So she went and she finished up college, which she had to get a higher degree than she already had, and she did that. And she went off, and she's living in Indonesia right now. She has no husband, and she knows that a husband is probably not in the cards for her in her life. But Christ is her spouse, and she is devoting her life to getting the gospel to people in that are really unfriendly to the gospel in that part of the world, if you know what the overall religion of Indonesia and Malaysia is. But that's where she is. And so this is the kind of call that we need to respond to, even when it doesn't seem convenient in our life. I'm going to give you one more type of call that you can think about personally, because this is something that pertains to every person here. If there is nothing else that you have been called to, like being a missionary or doing something big, driving around America and preaching at the capitals or something, you can at least attend church. That is something that I know the Lord calls you to because it's explicitly stated in the book of Hebrews. I think it's chapter 13. We're not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. That is something that you can do. And there's something else that you should do is to tell other people about Jesus. I know, once again, I'll embarrass Paul. He goes out to a restaurant he brings along a track and he gives it to every single person that tends to him when he's out at a restaurant. That's something you can do and you should do. This is something that we, it's not difficult. Attending church isn't difficult. And if you have the resources to help support the church, then you should do that as well. These are the type of things that the Lord is calling you to. And this is exactly the response that Joseph gave to his father. Yes, Lord, here I am. So please keep that in mind as you're going about your daily life. What is it that the Lord asked me to do? Something specific from the Bible, something extra that's on my heart, and answer positively. Verse 14, then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring word back to me. In Hebrew, Jacob says, lechna re'e et shalom. Go see if there is peace. Jacob is looking to make sure that the family is okay and that the flocks are okay. If so, he was to bring back news to his dad. Again, this shows that Jacob had assigned Joseph as the overseer. The sons of Israel are in the place where they had killed in an entire town. And because of where they were, Jacob may have wondered if everything was okay with them. But there's more to it than that because Jacob also specifically mentions the flocks. He obviously knew that the brothers, if, or if his brothers were okay, that the flocks should be okay too unless the brothers are not properly tending to the flocks. 
And so here we see that the chief shepherd is not concerned only with the shepherds, but he's considered he's concerned about the, the state of the flock as well. In other words, Joseph's responsibility is for even the weakest of the sheep. And this is beautifully realized in Jesus. If you want to get a full appreciation of this, and I hope that you would do this, take the time today to read Ezekiel chapter 34. In that passage, you'll see how the Lord watches over and he judges the shepherds of the flocks to ensure that the whole flock is safe. Joseph here and the Lord Jehovah in Ezekiel are both seen as fulfilled in Jesus' work in the New Testament, especially in John chapter 10. We read these words. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known uh, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And the other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Verse 14 continues. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Jacob and Joseph are said to be in the valley of Hebron. The term here is Emek Hebron. The idea of a valley in the Bible is a place of depth. And the meaning of Hebron is that of conjoining or attachment. Now, I would suggest that this name is included in this verse to give us an insight into the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is the only time in the entire Bible that the term the valley of Hebron or Emek Hebron is used. Any other time, only the name Hebron is given. So I would submit, without trying to overreach here, that this is specifically named to show us that place of depth from which comes the conjoining, the attachment of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. Joseph is being sent out of the valley of Hebron. Jesus was sent from the unsearchable counsels of God. The root word for valley, which is exactly the same spelling, but it's a different pronunciation, is used in this manner in Psalm 92. Here's what it says. O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. It's the same word. And so I see that this word, Emek Hebron, has been included by God to picture the coming Savior, Jesus. As Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The valley of Hebron, or the depth of the conjoining, in other words, is the uniting of the wisdom of God with humanity. It is the incarnation. Our second thought today, two wells. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? Here's Joseph. He's having arrived at his father's house in Shechem, or his father's field in Shechem, and his brothers are not there. As he wandered in the area, a man asked him who he's seeking. Now, you get all kinds of dispute over who this guy is. Some people say, well, that's obviously an angel of the Lord, or it's, you know, it's the Lord himself or whatever. doesn't say that. All we have is speculation on this. Whoever this guy is, though, the Lord had told him where Joseph's brothers were. And because of that, he uh, was there at the time that his brothers were in the area, and he is there now at the time that Joseph is in the area. And once again, here we have a picture of Jesus. Joseph is seeking the lost, just as Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The brothers may not have felt very lost, but to Joseph they were. And that's the important thing that we need to see in this particular verse. 
the leaders of Israel certainly did not think that they were lost, nor did they think that they were misleading the flock, but they were. And Jesus was sent to fix this. Verse 16, so he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. Joseph, not sure where his brothers are, asked the man where they've gone. The question is, where are they pasturing? In essence, if they're not feeding the flocks here, then where have they gone? So let's think this through. The brothers were to have been in Shechem, which is where their father uh, was told that they would be. The concept of feeding flocks in the Bible translates directly. This is a direct uh, translation to the concept of the proper teaching of God's word. One of the Bible's explicit examples of this is found in 1 Peter chapter 5. And it is beautifully reflected in what we see in the picture of Joseph right here. So let me read this to you. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now keep thinking of who each of these represents. The sons of Israel picture the leaders of the tribes. The flocks represent the multitudes. Joseph is going to check on the shepherds and their flocks, just as God sent Jesus to check on the leaders and the flocks, both, not just the leaders, but the condition of the people of Israel. But Joseph's brothers have diverted from where they said they would be. They are lost to Joseph. A keen parallel of the state of Israel throughout the whole Testament and the state of the church through most of our history. Guess what? As I said earlier, the leaders of Israel did not think that they were lost, but they were. Nobody would intentionally teach something that they thought was wrong, unless they're just a, a perverse person. But when somebody picks up the Book of Mormon and is taught the Book of Mormon, they really think that that's the truth, whether it's the truth or not. Either Jesus Christ's atonement is all sufficient or it isn't. It's not one or the other. I'm sorry, it's not both. It's either one or the other. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, say that Jesus Christ is not God incarnate. He's a created being. Now, they stand in those churches and they really believe that. They're not trying to be wrong shepherds of the flock, but in fact, they are mis-shepherding the flock. And this is why knowing and understanding the word of God is so important and why that extra burden is placed on teachers and on preachers, which is James 3.1. Not many of you should purpose to be teachers knowing that you will receive the stronger judgment. And then there's a point where you become not just a bad teacher, you become a heretic and you teach things that are not correct. But this is what's going on in the state of Israel. These people are not properly shepherding the flock and Jesus was come, came to correct this. So if you see these pictures that are going on, this is why God is showing us these things. We'll go on to verse 17. And the man said, they have departed from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Dothan is located about 12 miles north of Shechem, okay? Unlike many, many names of people and places in the Bible, there is very little disagreement about the meaning of Dothan. It means two wells. As we learn in John chapter 4, the piece of land where they were in Shechem contains Jacob's well, but Dothan has two wells. As wells in the Bible picture the place where one's life spring is derived from, the picture we're to learn is that the sons of Israel thought that they would fare better with two wells for their flocks. 
Anybody got an idea of what that's picturing? If we look at this in the spiritual sense, it is exactly what's seen throughout the span of the nation of Israel and even into the church. God's people trade the true waters of life for false waters, or they mix the two rather than sticking to the one true source of their existence, which is the Bible. This is explained quite clearly in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says there, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, they've left the true will, the fountain of living waters, he says, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There are pits which can hold water and there are those which cannot. And there are wells which nourish and there are those which disappoint. In the end, only the fountain of living waters will do. Someone has to lead the flocks and someone has to seek the lost. The people of Jeremiah's time, as well as the people of Jesus' time, had forsaken the true water of life and had hewn for themselves broken cisterns. And this is what we are told again and again and again in the Bible. To stand on the word of God and to never mix anything which could defile that beauty which he has given us in the pages of Scripture. Nor are we to turn to another well in hopes of being refreshed. The well is the place of spiritual nourishment, and the true well is found only in Jesus Christ. And guess what? Jesus Christ is only revealed in this book. There's not the inner Christ that each one of us seeks out, saying, I'm going to find out Jesus from my insides. Because when you rely on your insides, you will always misdirect yourself. You'll find Jesus right here. You're not going to find him in feng shui or in Buddhism or in Hinduism or in anything else. And you mix those things in. All you do is you take the purity of what God has given you and you have sacrificed that for something that is less than what you need to exist on. I am absolutely certain of this. I would not be here proclaiming this if I didn't believe it. This is our source of life, which tells us of Jesus, our true water of life. All right. Verse 17 continues. So Joseph went out after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Instead of turning back home to his father, Joseph went on to Dothan in order to find them, and he found them there. And instead of turning away from his wayward people who had added in every type of legalism and error into God's law, Jesus proceeded onwards to his brothers where he found them in the place of two wells. Our third thought today, the Lord of dreams. Verse 18, now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. So even from a long distance, the brothers knew that this was Joseph. It probably above all they could tell from his, uh, his coat, but if he was way away, they could still tell by his manner of walking, by his stature, by how he carried himself. You know, we can tell somebody from half a mile away that they're a friend or not. And the same is exactly true with Jesus. In John chapter 3, it says this about the leaders of Israel and their perception of Jesus. Now, in John chapter 3, you know that Jesus walks at night with Nicodemus. Everybody know that? All right, that is called Nick at night. Okay, there's my joke for the day. Anyway, here's what Nicodemus says to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from, uh, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Just like John the Baptist, they actually knew that they were dealing with a representative from God when they saw Jesus, even if they didn't fully understand it. But just as the brothers of Joseph conspired against him, the leaders of Israel likewise conspired against Jesus. The son and father relationship is seen in both Joseph and his father and in Jesus in John chapter 5 when Jesus says this, 
or it says this about Jesus. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, which he didn't, but, uh, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And again, in Matthew 26, the leaders of Israel conspired against Jesus, just as the brothers were conspiring against Joseph. Here it says, uh, then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the place of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Verse 19, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. The book of Matthew, and this is something that's interesting. I like this kind of stuff, and you probably don't know this, but if you do, it's, it's way cool. The book of Matthew is 28 chapters long, okay? In every one of those 28 chapters, there are several links or hidden connections to the first 28 books of the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and in chapter 1 of Matthew, there are no less than four of these links. One of them is the dreams of Joseph. In Genesis, Joseph, the son of Jacob, is shown to have dreams. In Matthew 1, Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, was given dreams as well. But there's a difference between these. The dreams of Joseph, who is Jesus' father, were intended to save Jesus. But the dreams of Joseph here were used in, as an excuse to kill him. But as God often does, these intentions are going to be turned around in order to save the people of Israel, just as happened with the dreams of Joseph and Matthew. In this verse, Joseph is called Baal HaChalomot, hard word to say, a lord of dreams. They're using it as a term of derision because dreams, if prophetic, could only come from God. And so they are deriding their brother as being blasphemous. Clearly, though, intended as a derogatory title, God intends for us to see Jesus in this as well. Jesus is the true Lord of dreams. Throughout the Bible, Jehovah is the one who directs man's dreams, both in the giving and in the interpretation of them. And so even though the title is meant in one way when spoken by his brothers about Joseph, it is intended in its fullest sense in another way when speaking about Jesus Christ. Verse 20, come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit at Dothan. Here we're at the place of two pits. The brother, the brothers, plural, intend to kill Joseph and cast him into one of the pits. The word for pit here is the Hebrew word bor. It's used symbolically in the Bible for the place where the dead go. There is Sheol, the place of the dead, but there is also the pit. This is seen, for example, in Psalm 30. They're used in parallelism. In other words, one is it's a one-to-one -one relationship that's being made between the two. Here's what it says. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. That's Sheol, the place of the dead. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So it's being used in this parallelism. It's the place where the dead go. In the brothers' hatred of Joseph, they have gone so far as to contemplate murder. The parallel with Jesus ought to be quite obvious. And this brings up a point that every one of us should probably think about before we go on. These brothers have been stewing over this for quite some time and in a place many miles from home. And the fact is that none of us, I could look at all of you and say, well, they wouldn't do that, but none of us is above committing a crime of one sort or another if we stew on it enough. And that includes going so far as murder. How we handle life's temptations and how we handle life's trials is up to each one of us. And the way that we will keep ourselves from these type of things is to hand them over to the Lord. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of God and our hearts are in fact exposed and they are open before him. 
If we can remember this, then it will help us in any and in every situation that we face. When we're anxious, we're going to have the knowledge that he is right there with us. When we're facing sickness, all we need to do is remind ourselves that he directs our health from the day that we were born all the way until the day we die. And when we're filled with anger or jealousy or bitterness, all we really need to do is to hand it over to him. Whatever the situation is, what we should do is to let go of our pride and humble ourselves before the Lord. And that is what Peter asks us to do in that same epistle I quoted a while ago. Therefore, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Verse 20 continues, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. So we have jealousy, murder, conspiracy, and lying in one verse. Not only do they hate Joseph, but these guys have no regard for their father as well. All they could think of is doing away with their brother. And as was the case with chapter 34, I want you to remember this. Remember chapter 34, the incident of Dinah. It's the same as chapter 37 here, in that God is never mentioned. Not the Lord, not God, not in any general way, not in any specific way. He is left entirely out of the picture. The covenant children of the covenant line have completely failed to meet their responsibilities as the covenant people. Again, as the Bible often notes, it is a picture of the people of Israel. They are either striving with God for God, or as in this case, they are striving with God against him. The sons of Israel are reflective of the elders or the leaders of Israel that are mentioned right there at the beginning of the Psalms. In the second Psalm, we read these words. Why do the nations rage in vain, speaking of the Gentiles, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers, speaking the rulers of Israel, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That's what they're trying to do with Joseph. And it's all picturing what happened to Jesus. The brothers plotted their deeds against the favorite son of their father. They wanted to cast off his rule and his authority, just as the leaders of Israel did to the Lord, the favorite son of the father. In both cases, though, God's plan would prevail. What was intended for evil turned out so beautifully that people still marvel over this glorious work thousands of years later. Jacob's family will be saved from famine and from death, and eventually it'll lead to the exodus and the glory of God being revealed in that way. And a whole world will be saved from the pit of hell by the work of Jesus Christ. You talk about something that's marvelous. Here we are worried about getting angry at our brother over something or frustrating and stewing over certain things that Paul and I talk about from time to time, things that kind of upset us that are going on in the world today. And yeah, they should upset us in some context, but we shouldn't stew on them to the point where they rule our lives. And this is God working through these type of things and making glory come out of what we think is a tragedy. And he'll do the same with you. I absolutely assure you of this if you will simply remember him as you go. As we see the life of Joseph unfold, you are going to see that. This guy holds on to the Lord despite things that none of us will probably ever imagine. I hope we don't. Unbelievable stuff. And yet he stands fast and eventually the Lord exalts him. Verse 21, but Reuben heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say why he protested this plan, 
But scholars, I, I kind of laugh at this, they generally attribute it to his heart being more tender than that of his brothers. I, I think that's probably not the case. Rather, the explanation is hinted at in Genesis chapter 42. When they stand in Joseph's presence in Egypt, Joseph, they don't know who he is, and he's there as the second leader of the land, Reuben will say this, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. This is what God spoke to Noah all the way back 600 years before what's happening right here. Here's what it said in Genesis chapter 9. Surely for your life blood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Even if God is left explicitly out of this chapter, he is there implicitly, both in the direction of the events that are occurring and in the conscience of Reuben, which is based on the law of shedding man's blood. Verse 22, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Reuben was no stranger with wrongdoing. That's why I say this thing about his heart being more tender than his brother's probably is not correct. Back in chapter 35, if you remember, he slept with his father's wife, Bilhah, but he at least knew that there was a line which should not be crossed, and that was murder. He'd seen it in his two younger brothers, Simeon and Levi. They went and killed a whole town. And so because of what Reuben did with Bilhah, he probably already knew that Jacob would not give him the birthright. And the same is true with Simeon and Levi. However, by rescuing Joseph, he may have hoped to regain his father's favor by what he'd done. Dad, they wanted to kill Joseph, and I saved him. Can I have my birthright back? That's just speculation on my part, but it makes complete sense to me. Now, whether this is the case or not, he intended to keep Joseph alive and to have him returned home safely. Now, I know this seems like a funny place to end the story for today, but this is where we're going to end, and it'll make sense as we go through the next sermons, all right? Every word, as you've seen, every single word, every title, every single thing that has happened so far has been recorded for the purpose of us seeing Jesus, that God might reveal his son to us, and so that we might hear this word and believe. Now, if God has put this much care into his word, and it took thousands of years for this to come together, how much does he truly care about you? If you've never made a commitment to this precious Lord who came to bring you new life, please give me just another moment to tell you this simple message and how you too can receive his pardon and be restored to his Father. I say this week after week, and I'm going to say it every sermon until I die. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We have sinned and we die. There are two types of death. There are spiritual death that happened immediately when Adam sinned, and we inherited Adam's death. All people are born spiritually dead. There's no connection to God at all. But we die another death, which is the physical death, and that happens after about 70 or 80 years. And the reason why is because it was tried before the flood. People lived to 600, 700, even 900 years old, and the world was so filled with wickedness. Imagine the human heart just getting more and more depraved. So God is merciful even in our physical deaths. But there's a problem. If we have our physical death before our spiritual death is corrected, 
we will stay spiritually dead for all eternity, which means there will be no connection to God the Father and we will be eternally banished from his presence. And the way that we are spiritually made alive is by calling on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because he did not inherit Adam's sin. He was born spiritually alive because God, the Holy Spirit, came and overshadowed Mary. Sin travels through the male. She's a woman, but she had no man, and so she, he was born without sin. And he lived his life perfectly without sin, thus overturning the deeds of Adam. And he gave his life up as a sacrifice for our sins. So he went into the grave. Anybody that calls on Jesus, their sins go into the grave with him, and they're washed away by his blood. And then he did something to prove that he is who he said he was. He came out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. He came out of the grave proving that he had no sin. So two wonderful things happened. The first wonderful thing that happened is that he proved that he is God. And the second is that he can take away your sin in his death, his vicarious or substitutional death. So if you have never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it is that simple. Call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I can't save myself. I want to be saved. I want to be in the presence of God for all eternity. I want to be forgiven of the things I've done in my flesh. And he will do it. He will forgive you. That's all he asks is just a little bit of faith. And when that's done, it is done for forever. You'll never lose your salvation again. Anybody who tells you otherwise has not studied their Bible enough. They need to go back and they need to rethink that stand. God's love and his grace and his mercy are forever on his children. You're adopted children by faith, and he will never reject you. So please call on Jesus. Give him your heart and your soul, and he will give you eternity of glory in his presence. Wonderful stuff. Here's our closing verse today and I decided to pick this because we've seen how brothers can treat each other and the Bible tells us how brothers should treat each other this is from the 133rd Psalm behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity great stuff next week is Genesis 37 verses 27 through 36 it's not a lot of verses it's called in and out of the pit of despair read those verses See if you can find Jesus in them. I know you can. It's so obvious what we're being told in those verses. So read those verses and then study them. Read them in Hebrew. Do everything you can so that next week when I give the sermon, I can just stop and have one of you come up and finish for me if I get you know dry like I am right now. Okay? And I'll tell you this. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things both for you and through you. All right? Now, we have a, a poem today based on the verses that we just looked at. I do this every week, and uh, this is called Sending Out the Sun. Joseph's brothers went to feed in Shechem, their father's flock. And Israel said to Joseph, please take heed. Listen, while to you I talk. Are not your brothers this very day feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you out their way. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers, the flocks too. And then bring word back to me. This is the thing that I ask of you. So out of the valley of Hebron he was sent, and Joseph headed for Shechem as he went. Now a certain man found him, maybe praying, and there he was in the field wandering. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking, or what are you pondering? So he said, I am seeking my brothers here today. Please tell me, where are they feeding the flocks, can you say? And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. That's kind of near. So Joseph, after his brothers, off he went and found them in Dothan, right where he was sent. Now when they saw him afar off still, even before he came too near, they conspired against him to kill. 
for God's law, they showed no fear. Then they said each to one another, look, this dreamer is headed out our way. Therefore, let us now kill Joseph, our brother, and cast him into some pit this very day. And we shall say he was devoured by some wild beast. What will become of his dreams when his life has ceased? But Reuben heard it, the thing they said, and he delivered him out of their hands. And he spoke, let us not his blood shed. He was not in favor of their plans. And Reuben said to them in his address, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is out here in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. Do not do it. He said this that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father, stopping their evil plans. Another conspiracy took place in the Bible's pages, and it led to the highlight of God's great plan, which was prophesied for many ages. Israel's leaders and Roman officials as well crucified Jesus on a tree at Calvary. But in truth, the Bible has more of the story to tell. He died for the sins of people like you and me. God knew that without the cross, we simply had no chance and that the devil would eternally reign over us. But because of it, we are freed from hell's dark expanse and brought into the wondrous light of our Lord Christ Jesus. And so may we with hearts of grateful praise and voices of song to our God employ. Yes, to our Lord Jesus, let us eternally raise a triumphant shout overflowing with joy. Hallelujah and amen. Glorious Heavenly Father. Once again, we've seen just marvel in your word, absolute marvel, and how you have taken the story of this real group of people, that one young boy and his father and the brothers, and you showed us pictures of what would happen in history as you sent your son to come and seek and save us, and uh, how we treated him shamefully, nailed him to a tree, put him in the, the, the tomb, but we know that he prevailed over that tomb, and we know that Jesus, uh, Joseph is going to be taken out of this pit as well. And more wonderful stories are going to come. And we just, we look forward to it. Every story is so beautiful. Every story is so wonderful. And the depth of the wisdom that you have placed into this word, it's astonishing. How great you are to give us these things and to give us things to excite our soul as we read your word. Help us always to handle it carefully, to handle it properly, and to handle it with respect. And help each one of us to go about our lives this week, remembering some of the things that we heard today about how to apply these things to our life, to uh, our relationships, and uh, especially to our doctrine, that it would be pure and it would be undefiled and that we would be people that are pleasing to you in everything we do. Please help us to do this because on our own, we're just going to wander off like a, a sheep away from the fold. Please keep our hearts in tune with you, O oh God. This I would ask that we... Uh, bring you the glory and the honor that you, in fact, are due. What a great God you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the prospect of a week ahead filled with good food and happy times and the, the hope of the rapture. Thank you for that. We look forward to it, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.